0: Judges 15, verse 1, after some days at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat, and he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in, and her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. Right in the margin of your Bible, Dad of the Year Award. What a terrible dad. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set the fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. Verse 8 says, He struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etam. How many of you just got spine-tinglingly blessed off of that passage of Scripture? This is like people at their worst. That's the whole book of Judges, by the way. One of the reasons I like touching in Judges is because it completely destroys the uh, secular humanist view that people are good at heart. Can I give you some more bad news just before we get into a little bit of better news? The Bible is very clear that there's none righteous, not a single one. We all come short of the glory of God, and apart from Jesus Christ, we're not good at all. That's just the truth of the Bible. I know that there's a lot of pundits and talking heads that will disagree with me, but I'm just a Bible guy. I believe what the Word of God says. Plus, you and I have seen enough evidence in our lives to know that people really aren't good at heart, but when the Gospel comes in and Jesus Christ comes in and the Holy Spirit comes in, people can become like Jesus, and Jesus is really good. Therefore, we're not sentenced to this depravity that we see so much of in Samson's story. And so, we're going to point each other higher when we go through this, but... Uh, at the same time, we've got to be realistic about human nature, and it's all the more urgent that we come against human nature in the sense of winning people with the power of the gospel so that they can be converted and have a brand-new righteous nature. And that happened to every single one of you when you received Jesus Christ. If you're here tonight you haven't received Jesus Christ, I want to tell you, your greatest need is not to clean up your act. It's not to stop doing this, this, or this. You actually need a brand-new nature. And so what has to happen is your old nature has to be crucified and the new nature has to be resurrected. And you say, Jeff, I don't know how to do that. Well, you don't have to because Jesus knows how to do it. And if you'll come to him and you'll bow before his throne, you will, you will experience what is called the new birth. You will have a new nature given to you because you will place your faith in Jesus. So um, when we left last uh, time, Samson was kind of in the middle of reaping what he had sowed. Do you remember? He had told the riddle, he bet a, a whole wardrobe to 30 guys that they couldn't solve the riddle. The guys couldn't solve it, and by the end of the wedding feast, this was all during Samson's wedding feast week, and at that last day of the wedding feast, they, they got really strong-armed with his wife, and they told her, if you don't tell us the secret of the riddle that your husband has, has given us, we're going to kill you, and we're going to kill your family too. And so Wanting to protect her family, she told the Philistines what the answer to the riddle was. Then they answered Samson. Samson lost the bet. He goes down to the coastline. He kills 30 men. He takes their clothes, brings it back, and says, here's your new wardrobe. And then the, the passage left off last time with Samson storming home, furious that they had deceived his wife, that his wife had betrayed him, that he had lost the bet and he came off looking like a fool. So when we left him last time he had gone back home to mom and dad's house. Now in this passage we don't know how much time has passed. We only know that Samson has decided my honey is down there in that other part of town. I need to go back down there too. And so that's where we're picking up today. Now, what, what, what's going to happen here is more shocking than anything Samson has experienced yet. First of all, he's going to encounter what I call the sting of rejection. The sting of rejection in the first two verses. Look at what it says. Just, let's just walk like Samson's silent friends with him through this. He, he first of all, presumed upon a pathway... Samson, if anything, he was a decisive fellow, and he picked a pathway, and that pathway was going to lead straight to his wife, and the Bible says, after some days at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat, and he said, I will go into in my wife in the chamber. Now, it's a little bit of a delicate subject matter, and I think we're all old enough to handle this. Uh, Samson wanted to be with his wife in marital intimacy. When it says he wanted to go into the chamber, he's saying, I have got to get into her bedroom. Now is the time. It's kind of interesting, though, because he knew he blew it. He knew he had stormed off. He knew that he had left her. So he's going to do like most guys do. When we've blown it, what do we do? We we show up with flowers. Except in Samson's day, he showed up with a goat. Now, guys, I don't, wanna, I don't really want to encourage you in that direction. It won't have the same effect on your girl that it did on his girl. But in that day, you show up with a goat. Don't ask me why. Some people just say that that was the tradition of the day. So, he's going and bringing a goat down to her house. And so, you just picture him. He's standing there, big burly Samson. He's got a goat under his arm. He knocks on the door, and boom, he is about to be face-to-face with his worst nightmare because he gets blindsided by a refusal. At the end of verse one, it says this Her father would not allow him to go in, and her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Now, this is sad, man. Here's Samson finally humbling himself, finally realizing he needs to go make, make things right with his wife. He obviously waited too long for some time between him leaving and him coming back. The father of this young woman had given his daughter in marriage to one of Samson's companions. Most scholars think it was actually his best man in the wedding because of the word in the Hebrew that's used there. It was a close companion. What a nightmare! Remember, this this is the girl that caught Samson's eye. This is the girl that motivated Samson to say to his mother and dad, go arrange that marriage. His mother and dad said, please marry somebody within your own faith. He said, I don't care what you say, go get me that girl to marry. They worked out the arranged marriage. Everything was taken care of. Samson was giving everything for this girl, and then he gets betrayed by her. He finally gets over that. He humbles himself. He goes back. He's got his goat with him, and then all of the... A sudden, sudden, her dad says, I can't let you into her bedroom. She's been married already. She's, she's already consummated her marriage with the fella that I gave her to. Now, friends, listen. Some of this is weird, and it's almost a little comical to us, but I guarantee you Samson wasn't laughing. So Samson is experiencing something that most of us have, have experienced before, and none of us like it. It is that sting of rejection. It is one of the most painful things that any of us can go through, and it is highly likely that for most people in the room, the deepest wound that you carry within you, if you're still carrying one, is that wound of some rejection in your history. Now, God gives grace, and God gives deliverance, and God brings healing to that. But in your history, if you went back, the the most painful thing to experience is an ambush where you're abandoned, or you're betrayed, or you are completely rejected. So here he is. He's been rejected, he's being refused, and frankly, he's been replaced. She's got a new guy, and Samson's wife is not Samson's wife anymore. So look down into verse number 2. He gets insulted, to top everything off, it's insult on injury, he gets insulted with an alternative, and so the dad of his wife, who's not his wife anymore, says, is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. Now, this isn't spiritual, what I'm about to say, but I'd like to get that guy by the collar and just smack him around a little bit. He's a terrible man what a terrible man. He's, by the way, he's not the worst dad in the book of Judges. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, it is filled with fathers that blow it over and over again because the, 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 the spirit of that age and that season was that everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. And so the father here realizes the delicate situation. Samson's standing there with a goat under his arm. He knows there's some expectation from Samson. And so the poor girl, could you imagine being the younger sister? You know, Samson's standing there, and, and Dad just says, what about her? She looks good, doesn't she? I mean, it's, a, it's just an awful thing. And there's, th- listen, I, this is a challenge to preach because I'm a guy who likes to apply the Bible to your life as I teach it. Here's the application for this. Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy, not only in the sense of fatherhood, but think about just the devaluing. Let me just run this rabbit trail quick. The absolute devaluing of women that is really embedded in the human historical record. Uh, A lot of people, and I say this about four times a year, and this is a good time to say it, a lot of people believe that Christianity muzzles and smothers and oppresses women, And what they are completely ignorant of, it was the message of Jesus and the radical expanse of Christianity in the first century that actually brought liberation to women. And wherever the gospel is, there is the liberation of women. Wherever there is a vacuum of the gospel and the gospel is not taken root, there is oppression of women. And so as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, we understand our biblical roles male and female, only two genders, male and female. You were born into one of those genders. And what I find as I look through the Gospels and I read the epistles is that the heart of God the Father and the heart of the Son of God, therefore the heart of the Spirit of God also, is that men would honor women, that we would treasure women, that we would esteem women, that we would value women. And what we have here in the time of the judges is when everybody's acting according to their own will, their own bend, what you have is is men behaving badly and women paying the price. I believe uh, it was three or four years ago. No, it wasn't. It was only about two and a half years ago. And... I got back-to-back prophecies over this house, this is before the IHOP Atlanta merge but it's consistent with the values of IHOP Atlanta, that one of the things that God wants to do through the leadership and through the trajectory that He's placed us on right here from Newbridge, is that we would elevate women, that we would have as an intentional pillar of who we are and what we do, the elevation of women in areas where they have been suppressed by man's religion now it doesn't mean there's not differences in roles it doesn't mean that and by the way ladies let me just throw this in there since I'm talking to the man you don't have to become masculine to become strong that is the grossest thing. I, I, listen, retain the femininity that God gave you. You don't have to go more feminine than He's made you, but you don't have to become masculine than, in order to become strong. There is something awesome in the kingdom about strength in women, and the last thing we want is a bunch of women walking around parroting men because they think that's what strength is. I am going to tell you something. I am so far off track, but I'm just having a good time, so here we go. Um, I don't know a stronger human being than Amy Lyle. And the reason why, and maybe there's some out there, but I'm going to tell you, in my life, I've never seen a person, not just a woman, a person more strong than my wife. And we've seen it because we had, had such a tragic experience in our life, and, and she, I'm going to tell you, man, what would have wrecked me, she, it's just elevated her and strengthened her and purified her and and made her so much more like jesus through pain through loss through tragedy through rejection through all of the things that came in the aftermath of that terrible auto collision um, seven years ago is is just this beautiful thing and and the the awesome thing was is she didn't become hard a lot of women think that hardness is strength be strong but don't be hard we got enough male hardheads around here. We don't need a bunch of female hardheads to add to it. Well, all of that is just really kind of dangling on what I'm talking about here is this devaluing of women that was epidemic in the time of the judges and just maybe planting this seed in your hearts and mind that before Jesus comes again, we will behold and witness an elevation of women in the kingdom and in the gospel that we have never seen before. It is already starting to happen, and where it's pure and pristine, women don't have to clamor for it. God is bringing it, and wise men will acknowledge that and understand it. And again, what are our guardrails on it? Our guardrails are the Scripture. All of us operate within the parameters of the Scripture, but I'm going to tell you, the suppression... And the oppression that I've seen of women since I was saved in 1994 is is far outside of anything that the Bible would ever legitimately allow. And so, when we're talking Reformation, we're not just talking about destroying religion in the liturgical sense. We're also talking about relationships, and we're talking about how we value and esteem one another. So, that didn't cost you anything extra, but I am going to move on to my next point. So, Samson's sitting there, and his father-in-law said, hey, buddy, I'm sorry, I gave your wife away. And Samson is experiencing the anger and the hurt, and that produces this outrage in him that is going to characterize him for the next three messages. He begins here to burn in fury. Now, remember, God's assignment on Samson's life was that Samson would be the leader in Israel who would begin to bring defeat to the Philistines. So God is actually harnessing Samson's carnal anger because he's about to go nuts in the next couple of chapters. And it's amazing to me that all of these weaknesses in Samson, God's plans do not get thwarted. God actually anticipates. He's sovereign. He's omniscient. He knows who Samson is and what Samson's going to do. And God in essence says, yeah, I can use all of that for my purposes. So let's go a little bit further. Here we start seeing it. And let's Let's be careful to gauge our own hearts as we read through this next part because this is where we see Samson's desire for revenge. This is a common response when you've been deeply wounded, when you've been humiliated, when you've been rejected, There's something insidious that can arise in our hearts where we want to hurt those that hurt us. And Samson's about to give full vent to that. First of all, let's watch how it happens in his life. There was premeditation in his mind. Look in verse 3. Samson said to them, he's talking to his father-in-law's people, he says, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Okay, what is he talking about this time? Well, you remember what he did the first time. He acted in anger. I think he's realizing he should not have killed those 30 men in the other town in order to bring back their garments to the 30 men that he had lost the bet with. And so Samson apparently is processing, knowing, hey, you know, I, I shouldn't have done that. So he says, but this time, this time I'm justified and I'm about to open up a can of pain on all of y'all. I am going to do them harm now we've already seen what samson can do when when god is upon him and he is a powerful supernatural superhuman strength but what's going on in his heart and mind right now is nothing holy he has literally made up his mind in that instant he hardened his heart he said in that moment oh man i'm going to take the pain done to me and i'm about to put it right back at a higher level on anybody that i can and i am going to do harm to all of the philistines i do think it's interesting that he just declares ahead of time and i'm going to be innocent when i do it and that's convenient you, you know what it is it's, it's the god told me to it's it's that god's cool with this or it's i felt the peace of the lord when i made that decision and God isn't within 100 miles of endorsing what Samson's about to do. Samson gave himself permission. And just because he's got a clean conscience doesn't mean he's going to finish with clean hands. He's going to be guilty of what's about to happen. And it's actually this moment that really begins to set in motion everything that's going uh, to follow. When, when you see that phrase right there in verse number 3, when I do them harm, let me just let you know, this is the normal outflow of bitterness and anger when it's not dealt with. I'm doing a little counseling here, but I listen. I had a PhD in bitterness before I got saved. I mean, I I, I could I, I flowed in bitterness and anger. I was mad at everybody. I was mad at mad at my parents for 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 our home life. I was mad at people that I was partying with for the decade between age 14 and 24, people coming in and out of my life, but most of all, I was just mad at God, just very, very upset with God. I didn't know any of that until I got saved, but when I got saved, I still had that, that training of my flesh to be bitter. Now, I got delivered from drugs and alcohol and all sorts of filth in my life immediately. The day I was saved, God broke that bondage. I mean, literally stripped away from my life, and it never owned me again. But the, the emotional baggage and those issues from betrayal and abandonment and hurt... That was in there quite a bit, and here's the normal outflow. The normal outflow when we don't deal with our anger and bitterness, and this can, by the way, it can also happen to a Christian. If we don't soften a heart that wants it to harden itself, we will walk around, we'll never say it with our lips because we're too Christian to say it with our lips, but we'll live it with our lives. We'll say, I'm going to do them harm. And, And we'll think on it, we'll obsess on it, we'll envision it. We want them to hurt because they hurt us. We want them to feel the sting of rejection because uh, we've been rejected. And now we have all sorts of creative sources and avenues in which to express, I will do them harm. Social media. <laughs> And we can do them harm virally, we can do them harm physically, we can do them harm relationally, we can do them harm financially. And if we don't take care of anger and bitterness, I'm going to make you a promise. If we don't deal with it when it's at the seed level, it will become an orchard. And lives that were meant for the glory of God end up getting consumed by bitterness and anger. My friends, I want to tell you, sometimes the anger and the bitterness is so deep within us that we know it's there, but we've learned to live with it, we've learned to manage it, we're, we're, we're trying our best, but we can't get free of it ourselves. And I'm just going to go ahead and, and just say this, there are moments where you just have to get hum- so small and humble before the Lord, and you have to say, God, I need such help with this, Lord, I need deliverance. And there are people that will literally help you get delivered from it. I'm talking about Christian folks that are specialized and equipped and trained and called by God to come alongside of you when when you and Jesus just can't seem to take care of it, not because He's lacking, but because you need human help. And when you humble yourself and you enter in and you begin to realize not everybody's against you, not everybody's after you, that God doesn't see you the way that people that hurt you saw you. And all of a sudden you come into contact with the identity that God's got for you. Well, Samson didn't have any of that kind Kind of stuff at his disposal. And so he is all alone, all throughout his testimony, by the way, all throughout Judges, the chapters and Judges that deal with his life. He, he doesn't even seem to have a friend. You can't, he's got all these guys that showed up for the wedding because they were drinking wine all week, free food, free beer. Yeah, I'm going to be there. That's what, that was Samson's day. That was the way they thought. And so he had Klingon companions, but one of them, I mean, his, his best buddy ended up marrying his wife. How good of a friend is that? And so, this is where he is, and so what does he do? He turns inward, and he says, nobody's going to tell me I'm doing wrong when I bring them harm because of what they've done to me, I can do it back to them. That's violence that's going to be coming, and that's vengeance. So, it goes from the mind, and by the next verse, it's already starting to express itself through his actions. Look, verse number four. He begins this diligent work of revenge with his hands. Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned the foxes tail to tail and he put a torch between each pair of the tails. He doesn't have any friends, but he's got a lot of animals around him. He's got goats and foxes and all this stuff and a lion. And th- th- he, he decides, I know what I'm going to do. Now, if, if if not anything else, Samson's very clever, and I have no idea how he got 300 foxes. Some translations say they're jackals, as if that makes it any easier. <laughs> Where do you find 300 foxes and jackals, and then when you find them, how do you get them and tie them together? But I'm a Bible believer, and my Bible says that's what he did, and I believe that's what he did. And so, where do you come up? What what kind of warped thinking do you have to have to say? I think I'll tie their tails together, and I'll will fasten some torches on them and light them on fire. You know what's amazing? When you get consumed by the pursuit of revenge. I, listen, I mean I'm I'm gonna tell you pre-conversion, not after my conversion, but pre-conversion. I remember spending a lot of time thinking how I could get back on so-and-so. And And you play it out in your mind, and you're just sitting there. You're smiling to yourself. Yeah. Yeah, you've got it in HD on the screen of your mind, and you're seeing it play out. And Samson, I don't know how many ideas he had to throw in the trash can before he came up with this one. I don't know if it's first. But he uses his ingenuity. He uses his God-given gifts instead of humbling himself. And pressing into the Father in his own hour, in Samson's own hour of pain, instead of doing that, he, he just uses every, all of his resources to think, how can I hurt the ones that hurt me? You know, our Bible still says this. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And friends, one of the things that you and I have to embrace is that... Um, the scales don't always balance during this lifetime for you and for me. He will balance the scales. I mean, he is going to. And before you say, hallelujah, he's going to balance your scales too. So when I think of that, I'm just like, I, I think I'll be quiet. I think I'll be merciful to my enemy. I think I'll pray for those that persecute me. I think I will actually ask God to bless those that come against me why because he's going to balance the scales and I don't want to be on the wrong side of that great sovereign balancing act and S- Samson was he was so far beyond thinking at that time I just there's a part of me that says oh man one godly friend speaking into his life If he had one godly friend speaking into his life every now and then when you and I get sideways and we get tilted in a direction that's not leaning into God, but leaning away from Him. You know, God has a Nathan for every David. And the Lord will send somebody, and you may not like what she has to say. You you may think that she has stepped over some boundaries that she was not invited to cross. You may think whoever this guy is that is trying to speak life into your death trap going on in your heart in that moment, you, you may think that they don't get you, they don't understand you, they're not being compassionate, they're hurting your feelings. How come they can't you know, rub you back and you know, make you feel better, and instead they're coming at you saying, hey, you are jacked up in your thinking right now. You're about to make a bigger mess out of the mess that you're already dealing with. You know what? That's a godly friend. That's the kind of people we need in an urgent hour like Samson is in, and he didn't have one. And so we get down into verse number 5. So, remember, premeditated it in his mind, started working it out with his hands, fox by fox by fox, and then we see this carnal satisfaction in verse number 5 in his heart. And when he had set fire to the torches, he did it, 150 of them, to let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines, and he set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Okay, back up in verse number one, we're given this little historical tidbit. Do you know what season it was for the Philistines? It's harvest time. This is where they make all their money. This is where they get their food for the next season. This is like the big season of reaping and celebrating. By the way, harvest time in almost every culture comes with celebration and festivity and and meals and just everybody's happy. It's the great time of the year. And what does Samson do? Single-handedly, he sets the foxes' tails on fire, and anywhere he sees produce from the harvest, he turns a pair of foxes loose. And then I guess he had some leftover foxes, because then he said... I'm going to take these and we're going to put them in the olive orchard over there. So he's burning everything. Now, we read this and we're a little bit detached, but it would literally be like Samson coming and stealing your identity... Emptying all of your bank accounts, racking up all your credit cards to max them out, stealing and selling your car for parts, burning down your house, and, and, and taking everything that possibly could bring you benefit in life. He did it not just to one family. You think he'd just do it to his father-in-law. His father-in-law is the one that made this. He did it to all of the Philistines. And so in all of that area, everybody's wheat gets burned up. Not only the wheat that was in the fields, but the wheat that they had already worked really hard at harvesting. And then all of the oliveyards or the orchards there, all of that stuff's burned up. And I, I, I wasn't there, you weren't there, but let's use our sanctified imagination for a minute. I just see Samson standing there going, uh-huh. Burn, baby, burn. Come on, uh-huh. That's right. Run, little foxes, run. And he torches the, the entire agricultural industry in that area. Now, how many of you know that uh, when you take that kind of extreme measure and and you start messing not only with one individual's money, but he he basically bankrupted that harvest season. How many of you know that the group of men in that city are not going to let that go? See, Samson stirred up the hornet's nest big time he's acting in bitterness hurt and anger he's not thinking spiritually he's not even thinking rationally he's thinking i'm gonna start something because i'm pretty convinced that i can also finish what i started and at this point he just doesn't care it's interesting to me that he's not praying Uh, You you don't find any communication between Samson and his God until five minutes before Samson dies. It's the only commune that you find between Samson and God, and it's in the moment of Samson's death. When Samson's busy wrecking his life, he's not praying, he's not seeking the Lord, he's acting out of the impulse of his uh, own fleshly wisdom, and at this point, the city's on fire. So... Here we go. Are you depressed yet? Because my goal is to depress you completely before you leave. If you're not depressed, please stay for the next point. Um, Samson's reaping of the repercussions. Here comes, this is when the chickens come home to roost, as my grandmother used to say. Here we go. First of all, his secret activities were exposed. Verse number 6. The Philistines said, who did it? Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, and they even knew the narrative to it, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. Now look at this. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. That's no laughing matter, man. This is terrible. The very woman that he fell in love with, the one that he wanted... By the way, the only reason she ever betrayed him is because these men told her if she didn't tell them the answer to Samson's riddle, they were going to come up and kill her. And so, she was in a straight betwixt two. So, she told them the answer to Samson's riddle because there was a bounty on her head. I don't blame her at all. Samson didn't care about that, and so he set in motion a series of events that grew in intensity and grew in the magnitude of the repercussions there. And so when they find out the reason that Samson was angry was because his wife got married off to another guy, they marched straight up to that man's house, and more than likely, they just burned it down with them inside of it. The very thing he wanted... Because of his actions, it was destroyed. Now, people, look, at this point, we've got at least 32 people that have died because of Samson's foolishness. Now, they're all Philistines. Now, I get it. Um, God was going to overthrow the wicked, pagan, godless Philistines. And it's, it's, it's not a pleasant thought, but part of Israel's assignment was to eradicate the pagans from the Promised Land because those pagans would bring spiritual corruption into Israel, which, by the way, they ultimately did, and because Israel failed to eradicate them. So, yes, God is taking care of business here, but Samson's not doing any of this for the glory of God. Who's he doing it for? He's doing it for himself. His fragile ego, his soiled name, his deeply wounded heart, And he lashes out in anger. Let me give you this. When two individuals, let's just make it two people, two opposing parties, do not lay down their swords, each blow gets escalated. That's just the way it works until there's a knockout blow. So in other words, um, put it in this. If I stomp on your toe, you slap me across my face. You slap me across my face, I punch you in the nose. I punch you in the nose, you put me in the headlock. Uh, you put me in the headlock, and I gouge your eyes out. I gouge your eyes out, and you, you pull out your uh, whatever. That's just the way it works. It escalates until it's over. And by the way, Samson is about to express this pride in his heart that he, he's going to put an end to all of this. Friends, there's only one good way to put an end to conflict. Humility. In every conflict that you and I get into, there's really only one solution that brings lasting favor from God, and it's humility. I know none of y'all have ever argued with your spouses or your parents. I know none of y'all ever have, but theoretically speaking... um, I tell people all the time this, especially when I used to do marriage counseling. I don't do it anymore, but I would tell people because um, in marriage counseling, people come in and immediately the husband and wife they both want you to sympathize with them. That's just the way it works. So I always tell them right off the bat, hey, I don't want you to win, and I don't want you to win. I'm gonna I'm gonna see if we can make this marriage win. And so when it comes to conflict in the home. Whoever humbles himself or herself first immediately gets the favor of God on them. Immediately. If the other person doesn't respond to that humility and that openness and that desire for reconciliation, the person who stays humble gets double favor. And the person that gets hardened, what does the Bible say that God does with the proud? God resists the proud. Have you ever been resisted by God? Write me an email and tell me how pleasant that was. Not good. But God gives grace to the humble, and so Samson is not humbling himself. He is just hardening his heart and hardening his heart. And so the Philistines now have stepped into the mix, and where Samson lit a field on fire, they let people on fire. And that's just all the way. That's the way it always works. Um. Be wise, man. I just I actually feel this cautionary word that I need to give. Be real wise about how you're handling what is currently a small conflict. Be wise. You know, we don't burn fields. We don't burn bridges. We don't burn bodies, but we do burn bridges. And a burnt bridge is really hard to rebuild. Man, How many of you know, man, you can burn a bridge like that? It takes a lot longer to build one again after you have burn it than it does to actually burn it down. And so I don't know if, if, if that's a timely word for any of you, but whether it's at work, whether it's in the home, whether it's in the church, just be really, really wise about how you handle conflict and, and just know this, it's so easy. The person who humbles themselves first gets the favor of God. So it's not a stretch to say whoever gets humble first wins as long as he or she stays humble. And so I know you say, well, man, they're going to get the upper hand. They're going to think they're right. They're going to get over on me. Not forever they won't. They won't. Listen, God resists the proud. If you have to have instant gratification, you're going to have a hard time with humility. Because humility's dividends come later. Sometimes they come instantly, but mostly not. Because typically when you humble yourself, the person you're humbling yourself in front of, if if they're not walking in the Spirit, they're going to strut a little bit they're going to feel like yeah i told you so and um you just got to talk to the lord about them you just got to go to papa say papa it was hard for me to humble myself in front of you but i love you and i know you love me and i did it to honor you now will you take care of my business for me will you take care of this for me and he says i've already told you i would i've already told you i'm gonna give grace to you because you're humble and i've already told them that i oppose them they're just not hearing me right now but they will Y'all with me? Okay. I really felt like that needed to be said tonight, and I hope that it's received an open heart. Uh, Verse (laughs) 7. I keep looking for a happy ending on this thing. I'm like, no, there's not one anywhere. So verse 7. His internal outrage escalated. Samson said to them, if this is what you do, if you're all about burning up people, watch this. He takes an oath. I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. Now, this is where Samson gets intense. Earlier he made up his mind, but right here he enacted an oath. When we say, and I don't recommend you use this kind of verbiage as a Christian, but we say, I swear I'm gonna do this or this or this. Um, It's kind of flippant when we say that, but actually when you find it in the Bible, um, it's, it's usually representative of an oath. When the Bible talks about Peter on the night of the betrayal of Jesus and how he swore, he says, I swear I don't know the man. Uh, Most scholars think that he was actually taking an oath in the name of God, like, before God, I swear I don't know the man. And so Samson here is making some form of an oath, and he says, I swear I'm going to get vengeance on you. Now, immediately, what happens in that moment, and and if we we repeat this kind of lifestyle, I'm going to tell you, there's nothing that attracts the demonic like a bitter heart. Few things invite the activity of the demonic than a heart that is dead set on getting even. It is a wide open door to demonic activities. A lot of damage can be done with the flesh, but what we don't realize sometimes is when we stay in the flesh... We literally open the door to the thief and say, come on in here, come and steal and kill and destroy. We welcome the demonic activity that can happen all around us when we harden our hearts. And so, I don't know that any demons are involved here. I'm not extrapolating and putting that on Samson. But I'm just saying this. He decided firmly that he was going to act in in vengeance. And then he adds this little footnote. He says, and after that I'm going to be done. It's like, I'm going to get one more ride in and then I'm going to be done. I'm going to give one more full vent expression to my flesh and then I am done with you people. It is over. Here's the problem. He has set things in motion that he can't stop and he doesn't know it. So he doesn't. He has the ability to start it and he thinks he's got the ability to stop it. But he was wrong because he actually never does stop this thing until the very last couple of verses in his life and you all know how his life ends. So... Very last verse, we'll get out a little early tonight. Some of you will be like, thank you, Jesus. I know this is heavy stuff, but I mean, it's, it's happening all around you. Why do I preach stuff like this? Because this is the life we're living in, man. There, we have experienced some of this. Some of you may be dealing with some of the stuff I'm talking about with right now, and God is gently warning you on a Wednesday night to really check your heart because there's a lot more in play than you think. But even if it's not about you, our lives touch people, and this is the way they're living. This is like 21st century United States of America, where everybody thinks they're entitled to say and do whatever they want, and they don't think there's any repercussions for it. And and Samson's example is like a neon sign flashing saying, be careful. So verse 8, his unhinged response explodes. We, it, it, the English doesn't do it justice here, but the Bible says, he struck them hip and thigh. That's just an idiom it's a, in its expression. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down afterwards and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Okay, so it, it's, it's not complicated. So Samson, full of rage and fury and vengeance, Gives way to violence. By the way, he's supposed to be the spiritual leader of God's people. And he's down in in Philistia, and and he's fighting the Philistines single-handedly. And he's doing it in his flesh. And so when it says he struck them hip and thigh, there's a lot of different views on what that exactly means, but most people agree. It's just a, it's phraseology that means he tore them up. He was killing people all over the place. We're not told how many. We're not told if he used his bare hands or if he used a weapon. Later on, he's going to use the jawbone of a donkey. Samson is in that moment operating in fury and anger. But I'm going to have to present you with a difficulty to wrestle through. There's something within me that says, I don't think he could have killed all of those Philistines without the power of God on his life. So it puts me in a weird position because we know that God doesn't condone murder. We also know that God's not condoning the wicked heart that Samson, let me, let me back that up a little bit, the enraged heart that Samson is operating with. But we also know that over this whole story of Samson is God's declaration that he's going to start putting an end to the Philistines. So we know at some point Philistines have to be dying. And so here we are. We're left in this kind of awkward place where we're having to say bad Samson, and yet we're also faced with a difficult reality that he could not have accomplished what he accomplished apart from the hand of God, the the supernatural power that comes from God. So, so, what do we do with stuff like that? Well, you know what we do? We just let God be God. We don't go out of our way to rewrite what the Bible says so that it makes skeptics more comfortable with the God we represent. So, when we see God doing stuff in Scripture that we're like, ooh, that's a scary God. What, what is that all about? Modern Christendom has tried to rewrite those things. Say, well, that's not really what it means. That's, that's not actually what he did. You know, God didn't really want Israel to move into the promised land and kill all of those people. That's just, that's you know, it's prose, and, and it's just, it's poetic language. No, friends. God sent the Israelites into the promised land. He said, kill Israel. Everybody. And the reason why is because he wanted to preserve Israel for himself to be a peculiar people that were monotheistic, that didn't worship other gods, that didn't sacrifice their children unto gods, and all of the pagan practices. And so God said, I created all of these people, but they are a threat to my covenant children. And so he sends them in and he tells them to do things that we're not comfortable with. So I'm going I'm to help you here. There's going to be aspects of God that you are not going to be comfortable with and he's still God he's still God he's still good and listen I I, I'm being very serious here if if you if you don't like that or if you find things in the Bible that just it doesn't hit you the right way listen at the end of the conversation he's still going to be who he is and he still says what he said but he does invite us as his children to come before him and say God I need wisdom on this Lord, I don't understand this. I'm I'm in a conflict between what I feel and what I'm reading and what you portray, and Lord, it makes me uncertain in certain areas with you. Lord, I I, I don't know what to do with this. And it's an awesome thing. One of the greatest things, and I'm going to close right here. One of the greatest things that we can do is remain honest with God. Read the Psalms and see how people processed what they were feeling towards God. I mean psalmist has said things like, when are you going to get up and do something? You know, you, you look at Hosea and Habakkuk, and the questions they ask God are, are I mean, they're things like, simmer down, brothers, you don't want to, you know, you're, you're in danger. But the reality is, is, is God is so awesomely good and faithful to his own holy nature that what we do cannot change who he is. And if we will stay in the presence of who he is and work out our tru- struggles and our difficulties and our, our lack of understanding, if we'll just stay there and keep coming back to him over time, who he is, to the degree that a human can understand who he is, becomes beautiful to us. And we realize that what we think are inconsistencies, because a lot of people think, you know, scary God of the Old Testament and awesome Jesus of the New Testament, they are one. They're one. You want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. You want to know everything that's in the heart of Jesus? Read the Old Testament. That's the heart of God. And so what does it do? It just brings us to that place where we just lift up hands. We say, hallelujah. You're the unfathomable God. You're the incomprehensible God. You are so immeasurably glorious that right now I'm just going to honor you by being quiet and just welcoming you to be God. That's not a cop-out. It's actually a release and a surrender that brings great fruit to our lives. Let's stand to our feet tonight.